Okay, why don't we stand and read Revelation chapter 5. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to even look into it. And then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping! Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome and is able to open the book and the seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seen horns and seven and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Then I looked and I heard, and the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all the things in them. And I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, the blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Please be seated. Before we dive into this morning, uh, the sermon this morning, I want to just take some time to do a fun little illustration with you. Uh, you and I know how hard Revelation is to interpret, and hence why we have all the different positions in the world about what this book's about and what's going to happen and so on. But I want to do this illustration to show you and give you one tool to help you understand how to properly interpret this book. This one little exercise with me can make a difference in terms of how you see things because this happens more than once in the book of Revelation. So I know many of you have been to public speakers and different things when the guest and the, the speaker makes you do lame things that embarrass you and you don't want to do. And so you're like, oh, here we go again. Trust me, I'm not going to embarrass you. It's not lame. But you all have to participate. Don't think you're too cool and everything like that, okay? So I want you all to close your eyes. All of you. Including the kids. Now I'm going to tell you something, and I want you to listen very carefully to my words. And as I'm speaking, I want you to tell me out loud when I'm done what you are picturing when I'm speaking. I want to get, I want you to picture the visual of what you're hearing me say. I hear something like a fast food restaurant. And on its peak, one like a giant M. And the M was yellow and was gleaming like the sun, bright on a hot summer's day. Okay, don't open your eyes yet. 
Yellow, what restaurant do you think I'm speaking about? Good, some wise, wise person was going to say Tim Hortons or something, but anyway, so McDonald's. Okay, everyone open your eyes and look. What do you see? Cup of coffee, right? Okay, what were you expecting to see if I were to tell you to open your eyes? You would expect it probably on the PowerPoint screen a picture of the fast food restaurant, but what you saw was a coffee cup. Both illustrate that I'm speaking of the same entity. I'm not changing my division or my direction in my spiritual lesson. Both represent McDonald's, but in a different medium. John does this through Revelation. And this is why so many people misinterpret things in Revelation because they don't see that connection. So we're going to learn one today. And this is the most important connection probably in the entire book. And in my, in my um, humble opinion, the most important vision and scene in the entire book, in the entire letter. Okay, so why don't we dive in? Let's remind ourselves of what we spoke about last week, though, because Revelation 4 and 5 fit together. You'll remember while exiled on the island of Patmos that John was invited into the throne room of heaven. And he received a vision there with one pastoral goal in mind. And that was to help those struggling believers in the first century churches in Asia Minor get a renewed sense of vision. To put on a new set of glasses to help them see through a proper spiritual lens. And this was necessary, you'll remember, because life as a believer within the Roman Empire back then was very difficult. Everything in society was structured and designed to pull you into the idolatrous way of life and promised you a sense of stability and security if you bowed down to the, Ro- the Roman culture and the emperors and so on. So there was security uh, if you complied. Now, that was in stark contrast, though, in terms of the way of life as it was, as of what the call was to be a follower of Jesus. And so the temptation to compromise was very high. And we saw in the letter to the seven churches that many did because the pull was so difficult. So John's goal was really simple. He wanted to help the Christians there understand that it wasn't the one in Rome who ruled the universe. It was the one on the throne who had ultimate authority. And their destiny was in his hands, and he alone was worthy of worship. And in that worship, there was one, or sorry, I should say, in the vision, there was one aspect that was super clear. He was worthy of worship because he was the creator of life, the giver of life. Remember in verse 11, Worthy are you, O Lord, and our God, to receive glory and honor and power For you created all things, and because of your will, they exist and were created. Now, like I said, four and five go together. So John, in continuation of the pastoral goal, has one more clear message for the first century Christians. And that is, not only is God worthy to be worshipped as creator, he's worthy to be worshipped as redeemer. He's worthy to be worshipped as redeemer. So let's read verse 1. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written in it, inside and on the back, sealed up with the seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? 
and no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look inside it. And then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. As John continues the vision from chapter 4 here into 5, what's similar is that God is still seated on his throne, seen as reigning. But something new is introduced. He's holding a, a scroll. Mine always says book, but in your interpretation you may have scroll, and that's the proper Greek word for book. So he's holding this book, and it being in his right hand is a symbol of authority and power. Now, you know what scrolls look like and what seals look like um, from all probably the, the uh, movies we've watched, uh, you know, in the King Arthur days and the Knights of the Round Table and Robin Hood and all those types of things, right? But just in case you're unfamiliar, I'll just show you just a quick picture. A scroll would look something like this. It'd be a, a animal skin or parchment paper made of papyrus, and it'd be written on it with ink, and it'd be rolled up, and uh, if it was sealed properly, uh, there'd be, uh, it'd be, you wouldn't be able to crack the contents of the, uh, of the scroll, and only the person who received it would be able to do so. So, but remember what was inside uh, these scrolls in this culture was it was the king's decrees, the king's edicts, if you will. And he would trust an associate to deliver the, the, the king's commands to a proper recipient. And at that time it would remain shut, but when the recipient received it, it was expected to be opened by the recipient, and then the, the edicts or the orders were to be carried out. They were to be obeyed by the person who received it. This is the same thing that's going on in heaven here as John sees this going on. The king has the decrees, his commands. The one on the throne has his commands. And the contents, though, are concealed, and everything is sealed up shut. And there's a problem, though, in heaven. There's a problem. They can't find anyone worthy to open God's decrees and advance human history. No one can approach the Holy One. No one can approach the Creator of life. But not just in heaven. It says here, on earth and under the earth. In other words, this was John's way of saying in the entire cosmos, there's no living creature, living thing that has breath that can do this job. In the first century then, what a statement. Not Apollo at the temple. Not Caesar who declares rule over your life. In our culture, not Trudeau. Not Putin. Not the most godly person you know. No one is worthy to come to God, the creator of life, and open that scroll. Humbling words. Humbling words. And it, and it leads John to utter weeping. He weeps when he learns this. And don't think that this is just a few little tears from a, like a bad chick flick movie. <laughs> okay? This is a full-on torn apart in the soul. Same word is used in Matthew 2.18. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. This is a scene after Herod has gone through the land killing all the baby boys under two years old searching for Jesus because he hears a king has come to usurp him. At least that's what he thinks. 
And Rachel is, a, is a, obviously a euphemism for Israel. So infant mortality in the land and the nation is weeping. That's the kind of weeping John is going on through here. Matthew 26 and 75, after Peter denies Jesus. Listen to this. Peter remembered the word which Jesus has said, before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Do you understand the tears now? These are tears in which they're the same as if you lost the life of your loved one like a child, or you denied Christ and you just felt absolutely remorseful inside for being a coward. And so John is weeping in this way, and it's gut-wrenching kind of crying. Now, we don't know why yet, but because the contents are sealed, but I'll give you the hint. It's coming up next week. The decrees, the decrees that are coming happen in chapter 6 through 19. And it's basically the decrees of judgment that are coming on the world for the ungodly rejection of, of him, their treatment of the Christian people, and the need to establish God's kingdom here on earth. Those are the decrees. And no one can carry out God's judgment. No one can advance history. No one can establish the kingdom of God. No one is to be found. But then, John gets great news. Look at verse 5. He said, An elder said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. For those of you who are not familiar with the Bible, these two terms, the Lion of Judah and the Root of David, are titles associated with Jesus as Messiah. In the Old Testament, the Jews were expecting a Messiah, and these titles were given to Jesus as the Messiah to come. We pick this up in Genesis 49 and 9. This is, um, uh, I think, Jacob, not Jacob, I think Jacob blessing his sons. And he says, Judah, you are a lion's cub. Is it Jacob? Isaac, maybe. It was Jacob. Okay, yeah, good. Anyway. Judah, you are a lion's cub from the prey, my son. You have gone up. He crouches and lies down like a lion. Who will rouse him? This is a, has prophetic implications, but he's speaking about the Messiah to come. And we know that Jesus came from the line of Judah. In the root of David, it's found in Isaiah 11, 1 through 3. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Now, Jesse was David's father. And so the root of Jesse is to be understood as the root of David. So these, again, were messianic titles. Now, both titles give you an essence of what the Jews expected in a Savior. Okay? He would be a lion-type figure who would rise to devour his enemies. And he would fulfill the Davidic covenant that God, uh, the covenant that God made with David about having always someone on the throne after his descendants. So it was, it was basically a, another title to show that the Messiah was going to be king like David was. So a, a lion rising to devour his enemies and a kingly type figure. This is why the next scene is so powerful. Remember what John heard 
He heard one like a lion. He heard one like a king. What would he expect to see then in the vision if he was to turn around? He would expect to see a strong, ferocious, military-type figure ready to do battle. What does he see? Verse 6. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the world. He expect, he heard about a lion. He saw a lamb standing. He's not changing characters. He's not changing visions. It's the same person, Jesus Christ. Bruce Metzger in his commentary says this. He looked to see power and force by which the enemies of his faith would be destroyed. And he sees a sacrificial love and meek obedience to God as the way to win victory. Let those words sink in. And this is why the Jews had such a hard time with Jesus. Such a hard time with him. They expected him to break the yoke of Roman rule. Even when he was crucified, remember the scene on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, 21? Jesus appears to these disciples. They don't know who he is because he's hidden himself supernaturally somehow. And he's going on about, why are you so down, guys? And they say, haven't you heard? Haven't you heard? We hope Jesus was the Messiah who had come to rescue Israel. Even the apostles, after Jesus appeared to them in the resurrection for 40 days, or actually close to 50, yeah, 40 days, didn't even get it. Acts chapter 1 and verse 6, he's about to ascend to heaven. He promises the Holy Spirit. And then they ask him this, is it at this time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? So he's fully resurrected, appeared to more than 500 disciples for 40 days, and they're still thinking kingdom now. Romans gone, now. And Jesus says in a loving way, you guys have missed it still. And 10 days later at Pentecost, they go, light bulb, I totally understand why he came. Now I get it. And the gospel goes throughout the world and people become saved. So again, most Jews were expecting a Messiah who would break the yoke of Roman imperial power and liberate his people by violent revolution. But the might of the Messiah God sent, however, was by the power of self-giving love. And once again, in quoting Bruce Metzger, he says this, Instead of being the ferocious lion that seeks to hurt others, Jesus is the sacrificial lamb that takes upon himself the hurt of others. If you remember nothing else in my sermon, remember this illustration and that quote. You know, I was thinking, how does this impact the way I live? What does this mean? Well, if Jesus said the way to victory is through self-giving sacrificial love, where I lay down my rights and lay down my life, surely 
That is what we are to do in this world as a means of fighting against it. Think of the words Jesus said. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Forgive with no limit. Live quiet and peaceable lives. Pray for leaders no matter how wicked they are. These are all of Jesus' words. And they make sense when you think about what he did as the lamb who was slain. One additional feature, though, we don't want to miss. You see, he's described here as having seven horns and seven eyes, symbols of power and wisdom. But the one I want to focus on is the fact that his, what his body posture was, his body position. <laughs> A lamb that was slain would look like what? Flat out on the ground. I saw a lamb slain as if standing. Standing. He's dead, but he's alive. I really believe he's pointing to the resurrection, wounded for us, but risen and alive and well. Victory then was not just achieved through death, but the resurrection. And it reminded me this morning, as I was just preparing last minute thoughts of Thomas in John, verse, John chapter 20, the resurrection Jesus, resurrected Jesus appears to Thomas, and Thomas is shocked. And he says, Re-, he's alive, and he says, reach in here with your finger and place your hand in my side and touch me. The wounds, the slain part were still there, the holes in his hand and the side, but he's alive. And then Thomas goes, I believe. And I want to leave you with something else to ponder that I learned in my studies You see, one of the main themes of Revelation is justice. We can't deny that. Chapter 6 through 19, you're going to see God handing out judgment on the ungodly and punishing those who are resistant against him. But you know what's important about that? Even though that's a main theme, from here on in, the lion, as a reference to Jesus Christ, will never, ever be mentioned again in the rest of the letter. No reference to Jesus as lion from here on in. But reference to him as the lamb from here on in occurs 24 times. The pathway to victory as a Christian is the same way as Jesus. Self-sacrificial, giving life. You take the hurts on of others. (laughs) 24 times a reference to the lamb not once from here on in as the lion. So let's take a look then at what happened after John learns that Jesus is worthy. In verse 7 he says, And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And we had taken the book, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break the seals, for you are slain and purchased for God with your blood from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. In continuation of this, we'll then see the angels and then all of creation in worship. So what happened when Jesus is found to be worthy? 
and is found to be the one that can advance God's decrees, it leads to an explosion and a chain reaction of worship in the heavens. An explosion and chain reaction of worship. Unstoppable. First, we see the four living creatures and the 24 elders worshiping. And they're worshiping because of what Jesus' death accomplished. He says, You have purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nations, and you've made them to be a kingdom of priests. This is all Exodus language, right? Remember what happened, how God first purchased Israel out of, out of slavery in Egypt? They were to sacrifice a lamb, put the blood on the doorposts of the house. When God's angel of judgment came over, anyone who had the blood, the, the God's judgment would pass over and not smite that home. But anyone who didn't receive the blood and, put, and obey God in applying the blood would receive the, the loss of life within their place. And it was through that, 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 that blood atonement, that they were released from slavery. They were released out of slavery. And this whole language of being a priest uh, happened again in Exodus 19, 5 and 6. They had come to Sinai, and then God said, these are the words you to speak to Israel, and they're powerful words. He says, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you'll be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Not only would they be purchased and released from slavery and death, they would listen to the relational language. They would belong to him. They were treasured people. And they would get to reign on earth. An incredible picture. An incredible picture. This is why they're worshiping. Because what John noticed was that what was offered to one nation, one ethnic group, the Israelites, was now offered to the entire world. The entire world. This is why 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 20 says, you've been bought with a price. You've been bought with a price. You've been purchased with a price, the blood of the Lamb. And here's what's amazing. It doesn't matter what shade of skin you have. It doesn't matter what language you speak. It doesn't matter what God or religious form you used to believe in. And it doesn't even matter what you have done. Jesus Christ has gone to the cross and resurrected to purchase you from the power of God's judgment and from sin and death. This is what led the heavenly entourage to their faces. The elders, remember, in chapter 4 had 24 thrones. They got off of their thrones and in full abandonment worshiped the one on the throne. And Jesus is standing right at the center of the whole thing. And they give the same praise and honor to the Lord, or to the one on the throne, God, as they do to Jesus Christ. There's no distinction. And that's why we are to worship God in full adoration and leave our thrones, so to speak. Not only do we owe God a life debt for our existence, we owe him a life debt for our redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Now this, of course, resulted, like I said, in a chain reaction in heaven. And notice the second group of people who then worshipped, the angels. 
In verse 11, it says, Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. The, the number here mathematically translates, if I'm not mistaken, I'm sure Stephanie and other math majors can help me out here, if I'm not mistaken, this translates to 100 million plus a million. 100 million plus a million angels. But like all numbers in Revelation, I do not believe that they're to be taken literally. They're metaphorical. So what is John saying by this? It's an infinite, uncountable number to show that every single angel in creation is worshiping at the feet of Jesus. But what's most important is I want you to compare 411, 4 verse 11 to this. In 411 it says, You, the Lord and our God, are worthy to receive glory, honor, and power. Look at what Jesus is, is given. He's also given honor, glory, and power. Same worship. But even better, back to the metaphorical use of numbers, he's actually given seven uh, titles to be uh, worshipped over. It says, you are worthy to be worshipped because of your um, power, riches, wisdom, might, honor, glory, and, and so on, and blessing. Seven times. Four extra things. <laughs> and seven is the number of completion, which means, means that the angels recognized that uh, he was uh, to be given the fullness of praise due. The, he was complete in terms of the praise due. And again, the same praise given to God is given to the Lamb. And they were to be worshipped the same. And this led into the final culmination in verse 13, where every living thing under the cosmos worshipped together. And every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them. And I heard them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. This was a culmination of every created thing in the universe bowing down. Daryl Johnson in his commentary said it this way, this was the swelling of praise to the fullest limits of all creation. The swelling of praise to the fullest limits of all creation. Again, why? Because he, God was to be worshipped as creator and as redeemer. So, how does this relate back to the first century Christian church? Remember his pastoral goal. Give them new glasses. Give them a new sense of, of spiritual direction. These believers were a small minority in a vast empire. And unlike the majority where they, were, they would go to worship the, the, these many gods in vast temples full of splendor and glory, this small, minuscule band of Christians were worshiping behind closed doors in little, small house churches. The temptation then to compromise due to the abuse they received was very real. 
to belong in culture. And, and the, this vision helps to regain focus, to say, you know what? It's the one on the throne and not the one in Rome that holds your destiny in your hands. Jesus is the one in control of history. He is the one that carries out God's decrees. He will unfold judgment on this world for their idolatry and their treatment of you. He will rescue you as the righteous, and he will establish his kingdom. So hold firm. Don't move. Don't be unshaken. Your worship, little band of Christians, is not misdirected. It's right on the money. Persevere. And I want you, he's saying, to continue to join your voices on earth in praise of God, along with the heavenly entourage that are doing it 24 hours a day. The earthly saints and the heavenly entourage join together to give praise to the God who's due. So what are some things we can think about as we leave here today? Thoughts to ponder. Revelation is a book of worship, not a book about worship. What's the difference? It's this whole letter, again, people think it's a crystal ball to the future. That's not the main purpose of Revelation. The first few words of Revelation say this, the revelation of Jesus Christ, period. The whole book is to point you to Jesus Christ and who he is. This book is to lead you to worship. If you don't want to worship God and serve him more when we're done Revelation, I have failed you as a pastor. And that's why people, that's what's so sad about this. People read this in fear and trembling and want to close it. The message is to turn to Christ and worship him in fullness. That's the picture of Revelation of 4 or 5, full abandoned worship, full honor and praise to his name. This book is about the worship of the Lamb. Secondly, Jesus is worthy of our worship because he purchased us through his death and resurrection from the power of sin, death, and God's final judgment. Everyone here is praising him for what he accomplished in, his rede- in our redemption. The, 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 the living creatures and the elders are going worthy of you because you purchased from every tribe and tongue and nation people. And you made them to be a kingdom of priests. They're worshiping God as creator in chapter 4 and as redeemer in chapter 5 and they're going ballistic in adoration for God of what he's done. Just a side note. This is how one issue that's really important for me in, in sort of talking to people from cults that don't believe that Jesus is on the same par as God in terms of deity and desire for worship. This is common in the JWs and the Mormons and so on where they think Jesus is merely just a man or a prophet. Well, I want to read you something in John chapter 9. Jesus has just healed a blind man. He's just healed, actually, a a boy blind. He's a man now, but he was blind from birth. And and this man has been thrown out of the synagogue synagogue for believing that Jesus is from God. And so Jesus... Um, 
speaks to the guy when he finds him later. He says, Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. And Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. And then the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. You know what's important about that? Jesus did not make him stand up and stop. Compare that to Acts 10.25, where Peter, Jesus' apostle, goes to Cornelius' house. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet and worshipped him. And Peter raised him up saying, Stand up, I am just a man. <laughs> Jesus didn't say, Stand up. He knew that was an appropriate response to who he was and who he claimed to be. And this is really important because in John's revelation letter, at the end of the letter, John is overwhelmed by what he's seen. And he falls down on two separate occasions to worship the angel in chapter 19 and verse 10 and 22 and verse 8. And both times he's rebuked and told under no circumstances to do that. And I want to read to you from 22.9. This is the angel speaking. But he said to me, John, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book, worship God. Worship God. And then he goes down to verse 13 and says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning from the end. So listen to these words. Worship God, the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. Those words should ring true to you. Remember chapter 2, verse 8, and Jesus addressing the church? Listen to this when he addresses Smyrna. The first and the last who is dead has come to life, says this. Jesus is saying, worship God, or the angel is saying, worship God, and Revelation is saying, you go to Christ. You go to Christ. That's appropriate. Finally, Oh, that's not the right one. If Jesus' model in this letter, or in this vision, I should say, of self-sacrificial love as a means of achieving victory over his enemies is the pattern by which we, we must then, as his followers, live as well. Right? Jesus' model of self-sacrificial love as a means of achieving victory over his enemies is the pattern by we, which we must, as his followers, live as well. They saw the they heard the lion of Judah, and he turned around and he saw a lamb who was slain. And then Jesus says, "If you love me, you will obey my commands." We walk in the same pattern as he does, and that means living in the same fashion that he did. Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Right, forgive with un, an unmerited, unconditional. Uh, Desire, or not even desire, just just do it. <laughs> Live a peaceful and tranquil life. As just a few examples.
As promised, we're going to have a time of communion. But I do want to do something before we head into communion that we haven't done in a while. And that's call any of you into relationship with Jesus Christ that may not know him. Some of you may have been coming to the church or going to other churches for a long time and have been contemplating who Christ is but never made a wholehearted commitment to him. Right now, in this letter, we've learned that he died for your sins so that he could purchase you from the power of death and eternal destruction. He loved you. He laid his life down for you and has offered you that forgiveness. But he also doesn't overcome your free will. He gives you that choice. And so he offers you that unmerited grace. But you have to be willing to receive it. He won't force you. And I speak to the kids especially. Many of you kids are growing up in Christian homes right now. And you might think, well, I because my parents go to church and I go to church and um, they're Christian that I must be as well. And God is gracious to children. But at some point in your life, you have to make a personal decision for who you're going to follow apart from your parents. And so if this message is striking you in your heart today, Kids, and you want to receive Christ as your Savior apart from your mom and dad. This is a call to you. If for the first time you want to do receive him, then during communion just come up here and talk to me privately and I can uh, spend time with you as we serve the communion. Okay? So the protocols that we normally do here is we just um, ask those who are have kids to determine whether they understand the gospel for themselves. If they understand the gospel, then they're free to partake. Um, if, they, if you don't think they do, then we just ask that they wait. Same goes for adults. If you're still thinking about who the Lord is and you're, and you're contemplating who he is, we just ask that you wait. But if you want to make a commitment to him today, you're free to partake. And we have um, uh, bread and cups here this morning. And so what we'll have you do, actually, you can actually partake up here today. You don't actually have to take it back to your seat. So when you come up, take a piece of bread. I'll pronounce a blessing over you, and then you can uh, drink as well, okay? So we'll do communion up here one at a time. There's two There's two aisles, so one can go here, one can go there. Roger, can you serve on this side? Okay, so Roger and I will serve you on either side, and you can partake. Take a couple minutes, just in quiet, to contemplate the message today. and. Um, Prepare your hearts for communion.